The Music Business Worldwide podcast is supported by Volley Music, a leading financial management platform for the music industry. Volley enables you to track expenses, approve invoices, and make payments 24-7, 365 days a year. For your free trial, head to volleymusic.com. That's V-O-L-Y music.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Music Business Worldwide podcast, supported by Volley Music. My name is Tim Ingham, the founder of Music Business Worldwide, and joining me on this podcast is Travis Rosenblatt. Travis is a particularly interesting person to speak to because, by his own admission, he spends a lot of his time not consumed in his day job. This allows him the bandwidth to think deeply about the music business, its challenges, and where it might be headed in future. The reason Travis has this time to think is because his company, Meddling, is a SaaS platform for A&R research and scouting. Meddling is very, very clever, gathering data from multiple touchpoints about new artists for clients that have included the likes of Republic Records, Cobalt, Columbia Records, and Atlantic Records. However, as a SaaS platform, Meddling largely runs itself, enabling Rosenblatt's mind to wander towards various crucial topics for the modern music industry. On this podcast, I ask Travis about Meddling a bit, but we also dive into PROs, DIY distribution, music's role on video platforms, and many other meaningful areas about the modern music business and where it's going. Travis Rosenblatt, welcome to the MBW podcast. Before we dig into both meddling and various discussion points in the music industry, who actually uses meddling and what do they use it for in 2023? It used to be the three major labels who needed to do A&R research who were doing at the time. And last few years, obviously, have changed A&R process almost completely. So everyone now does some form of what I like to call digital A&R coverage. So rather than one kind of research kid who would sit in the corner, everyone does some form of keeping track of what's happening online. So I have the major suspects, a bunch of indies, even some single person management companies, lawyers, and it's really just to keep track of what's happening so you're not missing out on any conversations. One of the criticisms we hear about digital tools being used for A&R research is that it can lead to labels, management companies, publishers, etc., spending too much on novelty acts, by which I mean a song or track that explodes from an artist that will never be seen or heard again, and then labels spending too much on that with the sort of sea, sea shanty novelty trend that took place a couple of years ago, for example. What do you make of that idea, and, and is it changing? I think we have to have a better understanding of what data can and and cannot do or what you should be using it for. First of all, it's descriptive. It'll tell you what's happening. Diagnostic, it'll tell you why it happened. Medley is even predictive. It can tell you what's likely to happen next. But it is decidedly not prescriptive. I'm not going to tell you what you should do about this information. And I think that we're getting better and better at understanding context and that you have one song that maybe is accompanying a cute dance or something that has a moment does not necessarily translate into an artist's career. So there are things that you should listen to, be aware of, but unless you have a vision for that artist in the same way you would an artist that you found at Mercury Lounge, that doesn't mean that's something that you should sign. 
I mean, this goes back to sort of old school, to use the analogy that you just made fits with that, the sort of old school A&R approach. I develop talent long term. Um, what would you say to people who say that's their approach, the sort of old school indie label approach, if you like, you know, we're in it for the long haul, we're in it for full artist development. I see a character and a personality as well as a talent that I want to bring into people's uh, lives and have evolve in their lives. What would you say to them if they say, I don't need a sort of digital A&R research tool or research based on digital metrics to do that? First of all, I would say that they're right in their approach. They should continue doing that, but they should be open to where those artists are coming from. I think that that's absolutely what you need to be doing. And I think you need to be using, you can't ignore that the internet exists and you've got to be using it just for coverage. You've got to see everything that's out there. I think that five years ago, I had a major in the UK in particular, kind of shush me, you know, shoo me out of the room and, and say, well, I hear hits in my sleep. I have ears made of gold. How dare you suggest that I need to use data? And I understand that instinct. But even that person has come back around and said, well, I guess as long as it's presenting me things that I should listen to in the order I should listen to them in, this is still useful. It's not going to replace gut instinct. It's not going to replace artist development. It's simply leveraging the audience that already exists out there that's already listened to things that maybe they've found things before you have. One of the reasons I was uh, keen to talk to you and get this down as a podcast is, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but meddling's going very well, but it's a largely automated service. And you've told me previously that you're kind of sitting around observing the industry and various parts of the industry, and you have thoughts on many of them. So I'm going to jump into one of those, but I'm also going to link it to your day job, if you like. One of the biggest topics on the lips of the industry right now is this idea of fandom and that one person listening to a stream may be doing so with far more interest and passion than somebody who may be listening to another stream and whether or not those two streams are necessarily worth the same thing or whether example A would be willing to pay more. When it comes to the platforms themselves, like, do you think that maybe we're moving into an era where specialist fans or more in-depth fans of certain artists or certain genres, et cetera, may actually benefit from there being different platforms for different types of music listeners? Absolutely. I think that Neil Young, I believe, has his own streaming service. I mm-hmm. believe that when you're a superstar artist and people come for your content, you can do that. I think that there are varying degrees of that. If everything is available for free at everyone's fingertips, that's a great value proposition for lean back listeners, but you have a large number of superfans who are underserved. And while that may be a small portion of the market, that is a very important part of the market. And I think that those tastemakers were able to incubate and turn up a lot of things that were worthwhile. And I don't think it takes that many people to break a new artist that then crosses, but they don't have the ability to do that anymore. So streaming services don't care about converting fans for artists. That's a huge problem. They just care about the time spent in app. And I think that if you offer everyone on the planet $9.99 for every song ever made, It's a fantastic deal, but it also creates a culture of just lean back listening. And I think that if every DSP has the same catalog, the same offering, the same price, if it's essentially become basic cable, I think there's probably room for an HBO. If that's us looking forward to how platforms can perhaps better serve fans, but also better monetize music, what about if we look backwards for a second? Some people in the industry say, 
for example, we got something very right with the evolution of YouTube to where we are now. But is there anything in the recent past few years when it comes to that digital services side that you think the music industry could have done better with, could have made different decisions around and or has made uh, lasting and or has made mistakes with lasting impact? I think that we're very lucky that people really like music and we tend to, to capture some value of everything. But we don't capture all of the value. I mean, looking at, to your example, YouTube that does what, $28 billion a year in ad revenue. They pay about $4 billion in royalties. We've given the value to the points of distribution rather than capturing it ourselves. And I always like to go back to Vivo. I think Spotify has, right now, it goes back and forth a bit, about twice the market cap of Warner Music Group. And that's pretty crazy. I think that we let everyone else capture the value and then go back and say, well, you need our licenses. And then we get, what, $200 million on TikTok's $10 billion. It's not a great value proposition. I think even Disney woke up one day and realized Netflix was capitalizing on their IP, said, well, hang on a second, we can do this. It was the original concept for Vivo. And then we backed down and now just use it as a, a collective bargaining tool. But it wouldn't require a new content budget and it already exists. You wouldn't have to build out a new ad platform, a new app. It's already there. So you wouldn't have a lot of the issues that say the Disney Plus does in this analogy. Let's move into another way to view the industry, which is the infrastructure around the way ultimately money moves in the business. I know that you were involved in a very interesting concept a while back called Signal that I think brought together distribution as well as performance rights collections and other parts, neighboring rights and and other essential parts of commerce in the industry. When you look across the 2023 business, and just in terms of infrastructure, especially in terms of global infrastructure, how territories work with territories, What do you feel is the most old-fashioned and outmoded elements of the business and what needs to change and will inevitably change? (laughs) All of it. I think with our infrastructure and IP administration right now, you have distribution, neighboring rights, performance rights, mechanical rights, administration, all of it has redundant infrastructure costs, SG&A, customer acquisition. It's all based around the same asset. And the idea that you have to then distribute and then chase down your collections later is just rather crazy. And I think that distribution was first to go. It's the most obvious to go. It has become digitized, commoditized. And I think we'll start to see the same thing on publishing and maybe possibly neighboring. But my guess is that's just going to be much smaller and much later. But you have even publishing administration deals that's cost on top of the cost. You're paying a publishing administrator just to go and figure out your performance mechanical collections you're adding layer of complexity rather than taking it away. You have a world we exist in now where we're going more and more toward digital being the majority of the income and suddenly PRS and MCPS taking their chunks and then handing it off to ASCAP and LC who get to take their chunks, who then maybe hand it to you if everything worked correctly is just completely outdated and antiquated. And those pieces that end up missing will be smaller than the non-digital portion that gets lost. And do you see that an existing player, not to name anyone in in particular, but if you look for AMRA that Cobalt brought along, I mean, there's Downtown and SongTrust that they often said they were trying to to push things forward. And then, of course, there's a lot of discussion around BMI. That's just become for profit, what that might become. Do you think that an existing incumbent or an existing player in the marketplace could light the touch paper on, on a major change in the way that that infrastructure works? 
This is always my concern with developing Signal is if you go out in the market, you prove that it's changeable because most people will say it's not because no one's ever done it. If you go and prove that it works and it's profitable, then Cobalt would just come in and say, oh, well, I guess we should have been doing that all along with Amra and be 10 years ahead of you. And I think that they will be pushed to get there. You have to split Amra and Cobalt. Amra is, is kind of way too far ahead to just be used as a value add for Cobalt publishing. You could also, like you mentioned, flatten downtown, use downtown's direct direct collection deals to write on top of Song Trust, add it into CD Baby and Fuga, and actually have a really interesting piece of infrastructure there as well. There are three or four moves here that, that can get it done. There are also people, like I was on Signal, trying to get it done from a startup perspective. That was 2019. It's 2023 right now. It hasn't worked yet. I think it's incredibly difficult. And I see people going from the same perspective of, well, we can insert ourselves as an additional layer, or we can go from YouTube content ID and then into collection, or we can go from reporting into collection, or we can go from collecting in Greece to collecting for the world. And I just don't believe that any of those actually get anywhere. The other one that probably does is that Jeff Price was smarter than I was to identify that spoken word and comedians aren't getting any royalties to begin with. You're not taking their royalties to zero as you build out their licensing. I think that was just something I didn't see and is also a definite possibility to get us there. Is that a reference to this idea of kind of a holistic service that includes distribution and collection? Yeah, I think, I mean, super fans are underserved by the offerings of the DSPs. And I also think that artists and songwriters are clearly underserved by distribution. I think that you can set up, you know, services on top of distribution that are low touch or near automated and then get into, you know, offering publishing as well in one place, offering neighboring in one place, then offering access to capital. I think that if you start kind of a low end IP purchase fund and attach it to a distro kid and just make it friendly and opt in, you can start providing cash flow to artists, the artists who need it. I can't interview you and keep coming back to the idea of innovating in the business and changes in the business without asking about artificial intelligence. It's on everyone's lips right now, but also the sort of industry terror that erupted in the face of what was termed fake Drake. What's your reaction to both fake Drake, that being the replication of superstar voices in music and those subsequent copycat recordings becoming popular, and also to that terror that the industry is dealing with right now, you know, what this might mean for the future of copyright and for the future of the commercialization of superstars. I was thinking back to the last time that we talked, which was maybe 12, 18 months ago. And I think your last question at the time was around how I expected NFTs to change everything and what was going to happen. And I think it just goes to, to show that we're a jumpy lot. I don't think AI is, is here to steal Drake's job. It's basically a fancy auto-tune setting right now. But there are really interesting pieces of it. Obviously, the legal implications have not really been fully fleshed out yet. But I think if people are only listening to music because it sounds like an artist they like, then we messed this up 10 turns ago and we're just now noticing. We haven't converted real fans. I think that the more immediate implication is you see companies like, like Universal grouping AI-generated tracks in with the DIY-distributed tracks to suggest that they're the same and that everything that's not majors is less valuable. Maybe they should be churning out a better product that can compete with Rain Sounds, but I also think there's probably 
a real conversation that maybe Spotify should only be a major, major distributed platform. And we can revitalize communities like SoundCloud and Bandcamp. That'd be just a much better funnel for these artists. So we talked about incumbents changing the business. How susceptible do you think incumbent PROs in particular today are to being disrupted? I think they're incredibly fragile businesses. One of the largest non-US PROs ran an audit a few years ago and found that if they lost their top nine writers, they would no longer be able to afford operating. And you have similar things around superstars at all the PROs globally. Some of them are able to change their cost structure and absorb a hit, but very real issues moving forward on how can these companies continue to run, make enough money to cover their basis, and not completely change how they operate. Is there anything I haven't asked you here that you're is particularly on your mind or that you're feeling particularly passionate about when it comes to industry discussion points right now? There's something really interesting happening where you're getting, I think after hypnosis proved that you could put some pressure on the major publishers, we're seeing real investment on putting pressures on the majors. And I think you've seen, you know, it's it's Hybe, Gamma, and Firebird have all come in and are starting to try to do a high-end disruption of the majors. And I think it'd be really interesting to see where those three companies go in the next 12 months. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, particularly on the high point, they're clearly building a, a war chest to go out and spend in the States. Uh, you know, there was a report in Bloomberg that said it was 280 million. I've heard it's actually a billion or more, but certainly that's the ambition. I mean, that could be very disruptive, especially as, as you point out, Larry Jackson and Gamma have raised similar levels of money to that. So this money is there to be spent and that can only make a major change to the music industry. Travis Rosenblatt, thank you so much for joining us, talking about meddling, but also exploring these different parts of the music industry that I know have been on your mind. And I look forward to another discussion like this, I guess, in another 12 to 18 months. Thanks very much, Deb. Good to see you.